Hi, and welcome to AlderPod, the Aldersgate Cycle podcast. Today's episode is number 32, and this comes in two parts. The first, the epilogue of the Aldersgate. The second, an excerpt from chapter one of the next book, The Ward of the Rose. Much of Hartley Castle had been damaged, the oldest wing of the castle seeing the most destruction. When Denna Gray was returned to her room after spending five days in the safe house built into the cliffs, she found it much as she had left it. Her petticoats were still hanging in her wardrobe, her shoes lined up perfectly. There was a bit of dust on her writing desk, she noticed, and the mirror had fallen crooked. But it was oddly untouched. She had expected to return to a ruin judging by the sounds of the blasts the castle had endured. At least the view was quite different. She had once been able to view the gardens in the central courtyard, but much had been destroyed by falling debris and, by the looks of it, fire at one point. The fountain in the middle had been knocked over completely, and the Order of the Rose, stomping through in their defense of the castle, had decimated most of the flower beds. This late in the spring... It would be impossible for the flowers to regain ground again. She had been hoping to see the roses bloom. The door to the hall was open, and she could hear Master Upham's high-timbered voice drifting in. "'Come along, girls! Come along! No time to dally! We're short of staff, so you'll need to help one another get dressed!' Master Upham stopped short when he came to Denna's door, and the eunuch gave her a look of both affection and admiration— he batted his eyes a bit, then said, "'Except you, Denna, dear. "'You and two of the other girls have been requested to attend the Queen.' "'The Queen?' asked Denna, shrinking back into the doorway. "'She was still frightened of the woman, "'and still just getting her bearings back after returning to the castle. "'She didn't think she had the constitution to cope with Malus I at the moment. "'Oh, no need to be a frighted, lovely one,' Master Uphen said, "'smoothing Denna's cheek gently.' It was a kind gesture, but it made Denna feel increasingly weak. Nella will be attending to you, he said. But Nella is Ellen's servant, Denna began. Master Upham's face stiffened, and he took Denna's hand in his. No, princess, no. You mean no one has found her? Denna asked. When Eleonora had not made it to the safe house, everyone had assumed that she had stayed behind at the castle. No, she has not been found, he replied, and Denna felt her heart dip into her stomach. Surely the princess could not be dead. They would find her. They had to. Nella's fingers were quick, but they shook, and Denna made no conversation with the maid. Instead, she watched her face in the mirror, the maid's pale, underclass features pinched with concentration. Denna thought she could see the worry there the fretfulness, and the way she set her blonde curls and twisted the pins in. Denna wondered if she were comparing her own hair to the glossy black tresses of the princess, wondering what her fate had been up in the tower. Very little left behind had not been covered in dust, 
but Nella and Master Uphand had apprehended a dress from Lady Bezerly, one of the inhabitants of the castle who was now resting in the infirmary with a broken leg. She was slight, as Denna was, but, a, but significantly taller, and Nella had pinned and stitched the hem of the dress. She was fretting about Denna's feet when Sir Velen was ushered into the room, one of the dressing-rooms she had first been brought to when the girls had all arrived to Hartley. Denna always liked Velen. He was narrow and handsome, his eyes wolfish and grey in his strong-boned face. And yet he was not attractive in a safe way, she didn't think. Though he was all courtesy and kindness, as most of the Rose Guard had been trained, Denna felt an underlying wildness about him, a hint of danger, sensualities. In many ways he reminded her of Brick Smithson back home. Likely dead, she reminded herself after what had happened in Vell, though they looked nothing like one another. But they both had a strength in them, a hint of power and danger that part of her craved. She did not understand it. Lady Grey, said Sir Velen, bowing low. There were three other rose guard behind him, their faces mostly obscured in the dark hallway. Not all the gas lamps were yet working. Your presence is requested. I will have the pleasure of escorting you. she had not remembered visiting before. Much of Hartley had been kept from the girls, and with good reason. They were guests, they were so often reminded by Uphend, not residents. And though Denna had seen many of the castle's wonders, the orchid garden, the menagerie, the falconry, the grand ballroom, she had never seen a door quite so unusual. It was an old design, the bones of it anyway, with thick wooden planks broad enough to have been taken from a ship. But it had been augmented, "'riveted and reinforced, then mechanized. "'There was a great silver keyhole in the centre of the door, "'and when Sir Velen turned the key he carried, "'it sent a series of gears moving and spinning off in various directions "'until the door shuddered and opened inward of its own volition. "'Her feet fell on soft carpet, dark red swirled with black, "'and her eyes were drawn across the vaulted room to a long table "'where the Queen sat with an assortment of other nobles.' Two other girls were seated as well, whom Denna recognized as Megan Alvander and Vera Vizina, a distant cousin of Denna's, who had been brought up not far from Hartley herself. However, it was not the Queen who commanded Denna's attention for long, though she was certainly impressive. For standing behind the Queen, dressed in the scarlet and yellow robes of First Alderman, was Denna's father, Lord Alistair Grey. Denna must have made a sound, for all eyes turned to her as she stumbled on her own feet. Lord Grey went rigid, then at the motion of the Queen moved swiftly around the great table and came toward his daughter. She stared, her eyes tearless, but burning as she approached. In the two months since she had seen him, Lord Grey had thinned, his dull blue eyes, so like Cora's, deep-set now in his face, still splashed with freckles here and there. In a way, those freckles gave him a perpetually youthful appearance, in spite of the lines drawn around his lips. His mustache drooped down, 
his frown more pronounced for it. When Lord Grey put his arms around Denna, she sighed deeply and held on to him, pressing her hands into his back. He still smelled of sandalwood and dust, with a hint of smoke. The robes he wore did nothing to conceal his thin frame, though, and Denna wondered at the lack of her own tears. She had dreamed of seeing her father over the last weeks so many times. She had cried herself to sleep with the image of his face in her mind. But now that he held her, everything felt wrong, stiff, strange, and surreal. Denalyn, Denalyn, he whispered to her, the familiar timbre of his voice a rumbling comfort. At last. It is with great joy that we welcome Lord Alistair Grey home from Aldermoot, said the Queen, standing. The rest of the group followed suit, and Lord Grey released Denna. They stood side by side in front of the dozen or more assembled lords and advisers. Denna did not see Ferris, the old chamberlain. May this family find its fullness at last. Your Highness, Denna said, falling into a curtsy. Her knees felt weak but her father's hand in hers kept her from toppling. Thank you. You will have time for conversation later, but for now I would like you to stand with Lady Olvanda and Lady Vizina, said the queen, leaving her seat, and with three rose garden tow, making her way around the table. Denna had never seen Malus this close up, and her beauty was significantly diminished. She could see the caked-on powder, the thick lines of coal, "'attempting to infuse what time and wear had taken from her. "'But Denna did not think the queen was ever beautiful. "'No, not as Ellen had been beautiful. "'The queen came to a full stop a few paces from Denna. "'Her dress was deep emerald green, "'tight-fitting around her small body "'and laced with silver about the cuffs and collars. "'As she moved, she set her search just so, "'giving the illusion of height.' and leaving no doubt as to the quality of the fabric. It glittered in the lamplight, threads of silver catching with emotion. Since the attack, and the continued issue concerning the High Counselor, we have been shouldered with the unfortunate task of discussing what to do with the passing of Princess Eleonora. Denna had just reached Megan, and at the news froze. Though we cannot know for certain what fate Eleonora met when the North Wing collapsed, her passing still grieves us, Malus continued, without much of a note of remorse in her voice, Denna thought. But even before this great tragedy, the High Counselor and I had already begun to take measures to change the method by which future monarchs are chosen. As the court has agreed, in this day and age, in the face of war and dwindling numbers of women, we cannot simply choose the future queen due to her breeding alone. Malus raised her hand. You were all selected here for your relationship to the crown, of course. But it is much more than that. I desired to keep all elder daughters under close quarter here to preserve yourselves, to give you protection from the dangers inherent in some of the less... She paused to correct herself with a long blink some of the more remote areas. But my decision, in spite of the misunderstanding at the hands of the Order of the Asp, was twofold. While Eleanor's passing is like a knife to all our hearts, 
It has been long since we have watched her dwindle. We knew that she was likely to suffer the same pains her mother had, a certain challenge of the mind. But we did not think them to surface so soon. We have long suspected we needed to seek a replacement as heir. Denna's heart leapt into her throat, and she felt Megan's hand tightened around her own. She did not recall taking it. You three young women, continued the queen gently, her low voice now tinged with softness. Through the bravery you showed during the siege at the castle, and the way in which you have conducted yourselves since first arriving at court, coupled with your breeding, have proven to us that you are the top choices to succeed as Eleonora's replacement. Everything moved very quickly. Denna nearly fainted for surprise, but her father came to her aid. There was much conversation about future plans, new housing arrangements, and a personal guard. Denna saw that Sir Velen himself was the captain of her own. "'You are now all wards of the Rose,' said Queen Malus, as she dismissed the girls after what felt like a thousand congratulations with sweaty-faced nobles and counsellors. "'May your beauty never eclipse your wisdom.'" Three turns later, and Denna still awaited her father in her room. This new room had a view of the sea, a steep drop, but no less beautiful for it. The waves crashed up, and a mist rose every now and again, obscuring the view. Inside it was lavish and lovely, and she, as she had expected. Somehow, Melis had managed to gather flowers, a collection of early roses and irises, and Denna wondered at the petals, passing her fingers over them very white against the red. She had been told he would only be detained for a short time, but still, Lord Grey had not come. She had just begun to wonder if she should contact Master Uphand to see about her father's location when she heard a soft knock on the door, followed by Sir Velen's announcement. Her father had come. As she watched him walk through the threshold, she forced a smile. Denna wished they had been close as he and Cora had been. Cora would have known what to say, but Cora was gone. "'You're crying, Denalyn,' said Lord Grey, as he came up beside his daughter. "'Would that this day were as joyful as I had hoped.' "'You knew?' Denna asked, drawing away from her father, looking out over the expansive sea. In the distance she saw the outline of three Moorish ships— they had arrived the day before, a staunch fleet manned with hearts and oaks. You knew they would come for us, in Vel. I knew, said Lord Grey. I worked with the Queen to ensure it would be done. That the people did not understand is a tragedy. You must know it pains me to know. They say, Vel is gone, Denna barely whispered. She had spoken of her fears to her friends, to Megan. But now, to her father, the fear welled up inside her again. It was burned to the ground. Our town. Our life. We were never meant for such a rough place. Especially you, Denelin, dear. You were always such a rose among the thorns, Lord Grey said, smoothing Denna's long flaxen curls. I regret that I could not have been there with you. We had no idea what was happening, Denna snapped, pulling away again from her father. She felt anger, but distantly, somewhere in the very heart of her. She wanted to reach in and let it burn, but her emotions felt too dulled. 
The people, the townsfolk, they fought for us, Father. There was a sound. This... Since that night, she had often dreamed of the feelings she experienced, restrained by the order of the oak, watching the dust rise in the distance as the order of the asp approached. I don't know what it was, but it turned all of them mad. Have free last one of them. The queen says it was the order of the asp, but what I saw... You saw the order of the asp commit a great evil, said Lord Grey, smoothly. Denna wanted to argue... But as her father said the words, she almost laughed for ever thinking otherwise. Of course it had been the order of the asp. How silly had she thought that it had been some great being of shadow and light. And Cora? Denna asked, the fight going out of her. Her father wrapped his arms around her again. They haven't found her. The papers say such terrible things. You shouldn't read the papers, Lord Grey said. They say she's a fugitive, that she may be captured. Oh, father, I thought she was dead, and somehow knowing that she's out there frightens me even more, Denna said, burying her face in his chest. He had changed out of his robes, and the rough tweed of his jacket prickled her face. Lord Grey squeezed his daughter's shoulders. You need not worry, Denna. Jem is with Cora, wherever she is. Jem? asked Denna, looking up at her father. His eyes were tearless, his smile sure. Jem will bring Cora back to us, whatever the cost, said Lord Grey. Of that, I have no doubt. You're certain? Denna asked. Wherever Cora is, Jem will bring her back. pressing her heels down into the mare's flanks, watching as Sir Renman made a motion at the front of the company. She could see him outlined in the setting sun, his hat taller than the rest, his shoulders sharp. And beside him, Mesmer Gimble, on a runt of a bay, his wide-brimmed page's hat silhouetted clearly on the horizon. She glanced over her shoulder, feeling Ez straighten behind her. The Sib had yet to get a hang of being on a horse, in spite of having ridden with Cora for the better part of the last two weeks. Hea's hands were linked firmly around her middle, and she was thankful for the support the corset gave her. He stopped, she informed the Sib, who let out a long exhalation of breath. Good, Hea replied. Where's Emery? I can't see him, Cora asked. The light was difficult this time of day, and they had been riding due south. Sweat trickled into her eyes and constantly mingled with the sand, smearing her speck something awful. Frowning, Cora looked down the line of horses and riders, and finally spotted Jem, with Emery riding behind her, his head tilted to the side, listening. 
The familiar twinge of guilt flickered in her chest, and she bit down on her lip, looking away. Cora, you've got to stop this, said Ez in her ear. It tickled a little, but she ignored it. These things take time. It may be once the wound is healed, he'll be able to... Hush, Cora said. I don't want to talk about it right now. We should... we should be up that way. Since Cora had healed Emery on the Ridge Vizina Ranch, he had not been able to see. He woke two days later in a terror. He said that the world was all sound and no sight. When he learned she had run to him and healed him herself, he was grateful and astonished that she had gone to such lengths to help him. Cora explained how the shrapnel had been lodged into his skull, nearly breaking through to the brain in some places, and that she had tried to be as careful as she could, but she had been far from experienced. And perhaps Ez was right. Healing would take time, but she could not rest the strange whispers she had heard when she had healed Emery, the voice speaking of the wrongness of the act, warning her that it was a choice she made, a choice she must live with. At the time, there seemed no other decision to make. Emery had saved their lives, after all, with song and flame. She had heard the account from knights that had been afield, and to see the light in their eyes was remarkable. They had hope again. They were inspired, where once they had been so close to the brink of despair. But there was no time to consider further, because Redman was dismounting. He was saying something, but Cora could not hear. So she trotted her horse forward a bit. Coming up beside the knight she knew as Sir Salfus, a woman in her late thirties with tight black curls and a piggish nose. Cora, look, that's it, said Ez, pointing toward Renman was now standing. Damn the sun, but it obscured everything. Cora's hat didn't seem to be doing the trick, so she squinted and saw at last what Ez was pointing to. Yes, there it was. The altar's gate. What was left of it? It was the first sign they had seen since they started looking two weeks ago. There were remnants of trees, but nothing that Cora could consider to be a healthy alder. Some had once been quite tall, judging by the girth of the trunks. Yet it was girth only, as most were felled. A few of the trees had saplings nearby, but they were weak, and many had yellowing leaves in spite of the summer month. She dismounted and then helped Ez down. A closer look? the Sib asked. After all this, said Cora, adjusting her specs a bit, of course. The sky was orange as flame, and she knew that if they kept walking across the Alders Gate, in a few hours they would hit the ocean. They were in the territories now, but just barely, close to the water, and the air was stifling hot and moist, keeping her sweating constantly. At least there was more in the way of greenery, though. Nearby, she thought she heard Brick's voice, but she adjusted her pistol instead and strode toward where Renman stood with Sir Gawain and Mesmer. When she looked at Sir Renman, all she could think of was Sally Din, her body catching in the flames the night of the funeral. There had been so many dead and so little time. Aunt C had agreed that they should burn the bodies, and her servants would see to it that the ashes were properly taken care of. Renman had stood, white-faced, until the last embers went out. Gowan had to physically remove him the next morning, and he had not spoken for three days after. When Renman spoke again, his voice seemed hardly more than a whisper, and the light had gone out of his eyes. Cora didn't know what to make of the man. She could not forget his cruelty to Emery, 
nor could she erase from her mind the image of he and Din embracing one last time before bullets ran down on them and the Order of the Oak attacked. It was love and it was hatred, all mingled into one strange human being. She far preferred Sir Gowan, who was, in most every way, a consummate knight. Makes me want to cry, said Ez, shaking Hea's head as Hea knelt down and touched the branches of an altar tree that looked to have been sliced in half somehow. Hea reached out and snapped at the branch, and it broke like a twig. Some of these were taken down with axes, but, but look, you can see it's not because of malice. They were trimmed, pruned. They were sick. You can see the remnants of a blight. Someone was trying to prevent the spread. I agree, Renman said, his voice making Cora shiver, though he was still a few strides away from her. Mesmer was hunched over, an alder leaf between his fingers, turning it round and around, back and forth. He seemed to find remarkable amount of profundity in it. Cora looked away, hoping to find something a little less dizzying to concentrate on, when she noticed an odd rise in the ground. She walked past the growing gathering of knights and riders, noting Professor speaking with Lark Starling. Brick should be around somewhere. As she stomped toward the rise, she chided herself for spending any amount of time thinking about Brick Smithson at all. What good could it do her? She was anxious to hear news from the handful of knights who had gone to one of the nearby towns in search of news. Nothing had been heard or seen from the Order of the Oak, and she was ever concerned for Denna. So why was she thinking about Brick now? Why was she constantly looking for his face in the crowd? Because, as had said, he was familiar. Brick was someone Cora had known since the youngest of ages, someone who still always trusted, who she had loved, and part of her would always love him. Ez had not mentioned their kiss, but it was a subject that was recognized in their looks, in their proximity, their touch. And she did feel something for Ez. She just wasn't sure what it was. When she had asked Hayon about returning to the Nithings, worried that Hea might not be able to get back after a time, Ez had brushed her off, insisting that Nesme trusted Hayon. Sagawin, she called over her shoulder, her voice carrying clear. Over here, this looks like some sort of old building. In the dimness of sunset, it had looked like a natural rise of dirt and ivy, but as she approached, she noticed the pitch of a caved-in roof, the outline of a doorway. It had been uninhabited for a very long time, but there was no mistaking that it had been an abode at one point or another. Gowan's footfalls were heavy and regular, so she did not have to turn around when she heard his voice nearby. I'll be. I wouldn't have noticed that myself, Lady Grey. Your sharp eyes do us a remarkable favor. What do you think it is? Ez asked, who hadn't been far off, of course. The Sib was dressed in men's attire, though most everyone knew Hea was no man. But Ez said it made Hayon feel a little less out of place, as if, on first glance anyway, no one would consider Hayon long. And that's all Hea wanted. Lee, over here, called Gowan, motioning over the priestly knight. Renman lumbered over and continued walking past Cora and Gowan without comment, as if he had discovered the house to begin with. Cora wondered if she'd bruised his pride discovering it, if he had any pride to speak of. A tender's hut, he said, nodding, chewing the side of his mouth. I've seen a few further up north where the trees are in better condition, but this one's been abandoned for at least a half-century by the looks of it. And the others, said Gowan. Were there inhabitants there? 
Only one I ever met, and I can't say she was much help. Not to mention she was as old as the root herself. She wouldn't speak to me, insisting that what she did was women's work. I tried to get more than a cup of tea out of her, but she was resilient, that one, replied Renman. Ez was looking toward the line of tree remains again, shaking Hea's head. This was done a long time ago, you're right. It's hardly a healthy one stretching as far as I can see in either direction. Something happened. The tree started dying by the looks of it. But whatever it was, they couldn't stop it, Hea said. Cora had wandered over to the hut by now, peering into what might have been a window. It's hard to see, she said. As always, Ez was prepared. Hea had taken the lantern from their horse and had it lit quickly. She thanked Hayon and walked, Gowan not far behind her, to where the front door had been. But there was something obscuring the doorway, like a trunk of twisted roots. She held up the lantern. The sun was but a sliver on the horizon now, and brushed the vines away from what she assumed was some sort of plinth. It rose to the middle of her chest, a considerable height. Perhaps it was a sign once. But no. As she continued to remove the overgrowth, she changed her mind— it was far too thick around to be a sign, and yet it was oddly proportioned. There was a knob at the top, and... She rested free the vine wrapped around the top knob and stared into a face, a face of wood and weed. Gasping, she staggered back into Gowan, who studied her with his strong hands. Gods, she said, as Ez scrambled to pick up the dropped lantern. It... Petrified, said Renman, leaning closer putting a finger on the face of the creature that was once the tender. How strange. I had no idea. Ez held the lantern up again and examined the side of the petrified tender. Hea's eyes widened in the light, the whites around Hea's dark irises in contrast. She's missing an arm, hacked off at the elbow. Just like Hea swallowed and Cora wondered if Hea was feeling as sick as she was. Just like the blighted elders, said Renman. Indelicately, looks like the blight moved from the trees to the tenders. Could be. Stranger things have happened. He paused, turning to Cora now. How do you feel as you stand here? A, a bit ill, she managed. More than a bit ill. Her head was swimming. She blinked a few more times, but it were as if the image of the tender would not leave her, as if it had been burned into the inside of her eyelids. Very quickly it grew worse, until Cora had the strange sensation that the ground beneath her was about to swallow her up. She must have let out some sort of noise, a kind of strangled cry, before she staggered and sank down to her knees, because Ez and Renman were down at her level already. Over the mutterings of the knights and riders, she thought she heard Emery singing something. Then she began to vomit. At first she thought one heave would be enough, embarrassing as it was, there was no other option to her. But she continued to gag, long after her stomach was emptied, retching bile and spit. I'm going to lose my own stomach, she thought dimly through her vision swimming with stars. Ez was speaking calmly, keeping her hair from falling into her face. Someone move her out of here for feck's sake, shouted Renman, and still gagging, Cora felt someone pick her up bodily and remove her. She felt better immediately and lifted her head up. She was in Sir Gowan's arms, and he lifted her with the ease one might a child. For the moment, at least, the feeling was subsiding. She did not retch on Sir Gowan of Fenley. That, she decided, would have been one of the low points of her entire existence. How could she look into the eyes of her grandchildren and tell them his stories if she had vomited herself all over him?
we have an epilogue and an excerpt from The Ward of the Rose. I apologize for the unexcusable length of time. Um, when it wasn't inconvenient to record this, I uh, had quite a few problems with my audio and breaking up and all kinds of really strange things. So um, finally today I was able to sit down and do this and it's long, long overdue. That's going to conclude um, Alderpod, at least this particular um, bit here. Um, I'm hoping to continue Ward of the Rose after I finish up a few projects and go in that direction so I can finish the rest of the story. Um, the epilogue, I wanted to introduce Denna. In the original draft of the Alder, Alder's Gate, uh, Denna had a point of view that went through the whole book um, and talked a little bit in more detail about what happened to the girls in Vel when they were abducted and what their journey was like, how they got separated from the boys, uh, Brick and Mesmer. <clears throat> um, but I decided after going through, uh, that there were some other point of views that were a little more important than with Denna's story being important in the second book that I would bring her in at that time. Um, Denna is much quieter in some ways than her sister, but often more flamboyant. She's a little bit of a um, she loves dresses and beautiful things and is a bit on the self-absorbed side. But at the moment, I think she's just trying to wrap her brain around everything that's happened. She's safely delivered back to her room. And if you catch it, she's actually relocated to Ellen's old room, the one that overlooked the steep drop from the sea. So she is now in line for the throne. And, uh, by extension, Cora would be as well if she had passed the test, but she's, uh, not currently in consideration, I guess you could say. Um, and the appearance of Alistair Gray, who we've heard a lot about, but had not actually heard, and we'll learn in The Word of the Rose exactly what happened at Aldermoot, why they were gone when the Queen, uh, when the Queen sent the Order of the Oak through to take the girls from the territories. Of course, not everything ended so badly as it did in Vell and Barnett, but, um, and uh, I wanted to end it kind of ambiguously that Jem, once again, I think probably holds a little more mystery than uh, she shows on the front. So Alistair Gray seems to believe that no matter what happens, that Jem will bring Cora back. So we'll see how that plays out in The Ward of the Rose. As far as the excerpt goes, uh, it cut off a little bit. It's about half of the first chapter. The second part goes to Emery's point of view, and he is, as mentioned, blind after the uh, the procedure, I guess, that Cora did magically on him. Um, finally actually get to the Alders Gate and see that they've been hunting for bits of it for weeks, but have not been able to actually locate. We'll find out why in the next book as well. But um, they do find a bit, and Ez, who has a little bit of knowledge and herbalism and whatnot, certainly understands that uh, someone has been at least trying to prevent a spread of disease to the trees. So something something related to the tenders, uh, the disease, and missing trees, uh, or I guess three big hints as far as the Alders Gate falling and, and what that entails. Um, as Reinman said, it seems to have ushered in a era of magic where there was not before. But at the same time, uh, bad things <laughs> have also been surfacing. Um, Cora definitely uh, sort of takes a little more initiative in the second book, and a lot of her character will come out. Uh, Emery, who I think has been tested by fire in a way, will uh, have an interesting part to play as well. 
we'll get to see Dunley, which is the bardic school that he grew up in as a little teaser for the next book, um, as well as a little bit of airship travel and ship travel, both by land and by air or by sea and by air. And uh, hopefully resolve some of the issues between Brick and Cora a little bit. And uh, other than that, I have a bit written, but I can't tell you what it is exactly because it will spoil the end. So um, on a very last note, I was happy with the way the Aldersgate turned out. Because it is technically the first in a series, I wanted to make sure that the characters' stories resolved to a certain extent. Um, Everyone has a bit of a you know, a a conflict and they rise to that conflict and something comes of it in the end, Um, whether it's being, you know, thrown off of an airship or dragged down into the knittings as the case of Sylvan and Ellen or uh, Cora kind of coming into her powers of her own and growing up probably more than any of the characters in the whole story. The the last speech that she makes in uh, the last Alderpod, which he actually starts ordering the knights around to me was really important. I felt that that was definitely um, her coming into her own and Emery sort of the character of redemption in a way, you know, he's betrayed his friends, but through his hard work and literally through love, um, he, you know, he loves Cora, whether that's, reflected or not Keats said that there was a power in unreflecting love uh when one pines after someone that doesn't pine pine back there's still I think he calls it fairy power um so certainly Emery learns that love in some ways can conquer some things whether it can conquer all is still left for debate um I didn't want Brick to be the character of redemption. I think he has every right to be pretty ornery and upset and continually grumpy about his lot in life, although he is being kept around by the Order of the Asp, and uh, hopefully Ez will make good on his his promise to fit Brick with a kind of hook or mechanical hand or something interesting. I, I definitely will be exploring that. And uh, there's also the Kathra Bav sideline, which I played down a little bit. I had originally had the book a a bit longer and decided that I would just have that one chapter to give you an idea of what it was like in Soderin. And uh, that will come into play, as well as her rescue and uh, the rest of what's going on in Soderin in the next book as well. Um, So it may be a while since you hear from me again. I'm hoping to put together another podcast at some point. But in the middle of uh, the writing trenches, as it were, I certainly appreciate people have continued to listen and uh, hearing from you is always very heartening. It's wonderful to know that my story is being followed and that people enjoy hearing it because Lord knows I tell plenty of stories, but sharing them is a lot more satisfying than sitting on them. So until we talk again, um, much appreciation and much thankfulness toward all of you, some of you who are new, some of who've been here since the very beginning. Um, so this is the last Alderpod, and I certainly hope that if you like the story, you share this with other people and um, that you continue to tell stories of your own. Um, until then, I'll talk to you soon.